Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with director of cinematography, Douglas Milsom. Mr. Milsom was a former camera operator for John Alcott on films like A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. He became a collaborator with director Stanley Kubrick following Alcott's death in 1986 for the film Full Metal Jacket. Tell me how you first uh, got got involved and started collaborating with Stanley. It was on Barry Lyndon, correct? Um, it was actually a part of actually clockwork, funnily enough, to the last couple of months I did as an assistant. I replaced the member of the crew, and uh, we got on pretty well. And then, yes, then when Shining, uh, sorry, when Barry Lyndon came along, I was asked to by him and the DP to uh, to join them on that one, and it didn't stop from there, really. Mm. So, but I'm sure that you. Uh, had some kind of preconceived notions about what to expect from Kubrick because he w- he had just come off of 2001, which was this legendary film. Uh, how did he say? How did he... I mean, I I was in a, I think really you know when you're in the role of a, a, a sort of lesser minor um, in terms of authority, you just get on with it and do your job. You know, right. who is directing it? It's always nice to be attached to a to a name like him, but uh, you put you 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 know it was just. Um, a privilege to be there, I suppose, really, but it was just in my job. So I never really got in, I never got to understand the methodology or the style or technique or whatever he does. Mm-hmm. It was all, although it was historic, I never, it didn't make a difference to me. I'd done loads of movies as, a, as an assistant camera. I think the people, like the camera, the DP itself at the time, John Alcott, probably had more wires on his plate than I did. Do you know what I mean? Right. Although, of course, Bowden was rather, was very, uh, Innovative in that in that he used and still they still are the fastest lenses ever used on a film set to photograph the uh, the candlelight sequences. So I was very much involved with that. So it was a big learning pr- process for me to come out of that and be able to be involved with such such a beautiful product product as Barry Lyndon. You know, very much. Yes. Yeah. That, I'm usually get on with it. I mean, I'm saying later on later roles with The Shining where I became more involved with the second unit photography, although it was taken on originally as the assistant DP, and then finished the the, 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 the last sort of uh, seven weeks doing the principal photography. So then soon after that, of course, Metal Jacket came, because he made films every, like, four or five years. Mm-hmm. I was asked to DP on the show, you know, his classic um, uh, Vietnam epic for right. Metal Jacket. So that's basically a potted sort of basic idea where... Um, no, I did them. Yes, and, and also I was freelance, so uh, it's always good to be asked to do anything, and uh, something as uh, uh, you know as, as interesting. And uh, with lots of directors I worked with as an assistant, it was great to cap my sort of career in that area with working for him. You know, yeah. I could go back any time. He was still alive today and work for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, what made him <laughs> what made him unique among the directors that you have worked? collaborated with well i think he is really um um you know i mean do do you want to know more about me or about about, about kubrick because um, i'm not that interesting really i mean you know 
I, I am in now, but I mean, I, I, uh, you see, when when you talk about Stanley, you know, what can you say that's not already been said? I'm sure you've heard a lot of it, but I, I read a lot of crazy stories that continue to recycle. It, it seems the general picture is that he's a recluse surrounded by high walls mm-hmm. and computers who wears a football helmet while driving at 30 miles an hour. But what irritates him most, that he was a mindless sort of perfectionist who shoots a hundred takes because performers didn't know their lines. Now, you, you've probably heard all this, right? Yes, yeah. This is, what, this is the thing that I've, I've, I heard before going in to work for him, you see? So you think he's a bit batty, really, you know, eccentric. But when you get to work with him, I mean, uh, I was asked to give a, a sort of speech at the, uh, the Academy uh, in a tribute to Stanley for Full Metal Jacket at the British Film Institute a couple of years ago. And in it, I, I mentioned, if I can quote you some things I said, can I? Please, please. Well, I said the environment on Full Metal Jacket, while not real, evoked a mood of war. And he's not alone in that belief. Others felt the confusion and sense of hopelessness. You know, it was part of Stanley's Kubrick's plan, his intention, what he imagined the film to be, creating an environment that would mold his actors into the form he had imagined in a war zone, you know, like Born to Kill, Aggression on one hand, and Altruism on the other. So it wasn't not necessarily they're not knowing their lines, more that's the actors, that is, more the interpretation meaning behind the words. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I saw that much more after working with him than I, than I well, now than I did then. I wish I had, actually, because I do see much more now about him since I'm, he's been away and gone than I saw then. And that, that's the thing, you're so close to somebody. You know, um, um, I, I had the privilege of experiencing three of his films, maybe four, partly, working as an AC, a cameraman later, and director of photography. And after, I suppose, 50 years I've been in camera, or near 100 movies, more, they were the three that I'm most proud. I think, really, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what surprises me, though? And and, yeah. and, and, and all the conversations that we've had about his, mm. his working methods mm. and the long takes and all of that, is that yeah. when, when, people, uh, when people lead that charge against him, it's usually it's usually in saying what you just did that you know the actors didn't know their lines and blah blah blah. But what surprised me about it for someone that's known as so controlling uh, with the actors, a lot of the actors that I've spoken to that worked for him say that there was incredible freedom that they were exploring, and a lot of times when they'd do that number of takes, they were able to try different things. Yeah, that's true to some extent too. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Jack needed to. to I mean, Jack would uh, always um, just do the first take wouldn't be any difference of 20 takes or 30 takes. They'd all be perfect. Each one would be no, no different. And I think he felt if you let Jack loose, he might come up with something, you know, quite different that mm-hmm. would lend itself cause, uh, to, um, you know, an integral part of something maybe he hadn't thought of at time Stanley, that is. And, uh, you know, because when you're, when, you're, when you're sort of scripting a a film like The Shining, which really rides its strength. It was, it wrote on the back of a best-selling novel, mm-hmm. and which was, I thought, a fantastic book. You know, he deviates completely away from the original Stephen King object, and, and the story becomes something that Stanley's, you know, really. 
And in many ways, it, it, it's improved. Some people it distracts from it. Other people say, you know, again, when Stephen King went on to make The Shining himself, he didn't really score any points, did it? Really, he's still yeah. shining the original Kubrick. is a classic. So he has that ability to pull something out of a script like Clockwork. You ever read Clockwork Orange? What he did with that movie was magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's one of the best films he's ever done. And after Clockwork, of course, he, he, he up to that point, I think, in many ways, applied himself more. But on Clockwork made him... I suppose incredibly, because the whole thing was brilliant, I thought. It, it made it incredibly rich, almost powerful as well with Warner. So the next job, he could take as long and do what he liked. And I think you let go a little bit of the application. You don't apply yourself so much in the directing department, you know, because you have you have a name now and, and of course, amazing skill. So you're seeking something new, and every film he did was quite different, really. Mm. He didn't sort of stick to one genre. I'm very surprised he did. A, a second war film because after Palms of Glory which took some beating you know it's still a classic and always have been and I think full metal is you know I mean what I learned from Stanley is what what a photographer is, 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 is or does really and he told me that it, it's artistic interpretation so therefore unquantifiable you know it's his authorship of the original work rather than the simple recording of a physical event you know, style never replacing good ideas any more than the technique is a substitute for content. The script, that's the content. And Stanley Kubrick's films had that mystery and beauty, which I consider the real art stuff. And we're often greasy with reservation by, by critics, and only after a period of time did their status of something truly special emerge. Mm-hmm. He always said to me, don't give them what they want. Give them what they don't know they want yet. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, no, absolutely. Um, that's why I got, they're the ones that I suppose that I, in my, all my career, nobody ever goes back and says, whatever else I might have done. <laughs> it's always the Danny Kubrick film. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I did Persona non grata. Yeah, you know, um, uh, let, me ask, eh? let, let me ask you some specific questions about a, mm. a, a few of these films. Uh, mm. st- starting with Barry Lyndon, um, he, he pushes the envelope technologically mm. in all of his films. In Barry Lyndon, it was obviously the, the vast lenses shooting by candlelight. That must have been a, a, a painstaking process. Mm. Yes, it was. Um, I mean, technically, for people that probably don't know about these lenses, uh, they, they weren't built for cinematography. They were stills lenses, you know? Mm. You know about all that, do you? There's an article I put, I think, in the American Cinematographer soon after it was released uh, yeah. about this sort of stuff. So you've probably read all that, have you? Yes, sir. Yeah, so you know they were adapted to fit a, ca- a movie camera, and uh, they were um, an, an editorial cinema products. Um, after these lenses were sold to Stanley, or he, I mean, he probably gave them to him, they were made for deep space photography. They worked on Hasselblads, and they were all prime 50mm lens, but they were 0.70. You know, that's quite fast. Most lenses are f2 or 1.4. This was 0. 0.95, 0. 0.70, so it's still two stops faster than most lenses ever produced, and still is. And just and, and Ed remounted the studio, that is, to, to work on um, a blimp new construction semi camera, a sound camera. And that's what we do. We adapted them, we scaled them, and used them for those candlelight sequences. The depth of field, as you can imagine, was extremely 
extremely shallow. Yeah. Literally, you know, ten, five feet, you have probably half an inch of depth. And sometimes Ryan O'Neill, Ryan O'Neill <laughs> couldn't move. We had to sort of <laughs> clamp his head. <laughs> and uh, the camera used to move. We got quite adventurous with them in the end because although they're all standard 50s, he then had various other compendium lenses made that would fit to the front of his 50s to give them another another angle, like a 25 or 35 and a 70. So basically he had four of these .70 lenses now as a complete set. Mm. So uh, that that was the beauty of it. And going through all that was like three months of tests and scaling, and that's what I was involved with before we even turned a foot of, of film, you know? Mm. And uh, I've often wondered since whether we could still use them to make another film. I think he was talking about using them on Eyes Wide Shut, but we never got round to it, you know? Wow. Yes, that that was a challenge. And that was a long, long film, though. It was an 18, I mean, I was on it 18 months, I suppose. Mm. Um, principal shooting was probably about 12 months, frankly, with the shutdown. You heard about it shutting down, did you, in Ireland? I did, yes. Yeah, so we did three months there, and then we shut down. And, uh, I think you laid off most of the crew with the, the odd few. I was one, and the DP, John Hawkon, Roy Walker, maybe uh, Ken Adam. Five or six people were retained, and uh, first assistant director. And then we resumed work three months later in uh, in and around uh, England, in around mm. the stately homes in England, yeah. You know, when, when you think about Kubrick's films, uh, always the, the images kind of burn mm. in your brain. Um, mm. And a, a lot of those images were captured uh, in concert with John Alcott. Uh, mm. Tell me about what you observed of their relationship. Well, I think it was purely professional. I think it's like everything else. Um, there was no, with Stanley, I mean, there's no, um, there's no social, I and mean, there's no social life. Um, he, on, um, you know, I, I always say, you know, after, um, with John, he was, uh, I mean, John did clockwork with him, and, uh, he, he, and also he picked up the, the, the last sort of, uh, um, like two years shooting of, of, of uh, Space Odyssey 2001, so John was on the model unit for all that time. And he was on the principal photography as well, but as an assistant cameraman. So this is what Stanley does. He appreciates people's efforts and works and admiration. If, they, you know, if he likes them and he feels they're completely 100% devoted to him, which you have to be, mm-hmm. otherwise you're out. Um, devoted in a respectful sense, not just you know, being some sort of snivelling, sycophantic yard dog who wants a job and, you know, and needs the credit, because you're, you're there for a year. Most of them take, you know, 20, 30 weeks, maybe longer. So it's always a test. I always say to anybody to get to know anybody, either marry them or do a picture with Stanley Kubrick, right? <laughs> then at the end of it, you know who's going to be asked back for the next. And John was very tolerant and very forgiving and thankful for the opportunity to, to, to work for him because when you ask a DPS show for Sammy, it's high profile. It uh-huh. is. You put your name on the blocks. And of course you got the Oscar for Barry Lennon, which he's, his career never looked back after that, you know. Yeah. And it I gives you it unfortunately photograph work of art. It was much less more photographically enjoyable, I suppose, really in the sense than full metal, which again was digressed incredibly a documentary type bio of, of Vietnam as it probably was, which most people say who were there, would identify with more than any of the others. It's probably trying to say something that probably the apocalypse never did. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when you read dispatches, and uh, David Hare's dispatches, or you read uh, Short Timers by Gustav Lasten, you'll see between those two books, Full Metal. You know, those people went through it. One is a correspondent, one is a, a yeah, gone man. And so, you know, this is the research he does into stuff, you know, and that's mm. it. So um, when you do Berlin, and the, the whole Makepeace Thackeroy thing, not, it was, I found the book rather tedious, I'd put it down. And in fact, the film, is, in many ways, although a cinematic delight, was rather over length, wasn't it? I mean, I found it so, anyway. But I suppose when you're involved with something for so long, um, you know, um, it just all you live off is, is the memories of every shot or every scene you ever did with him. You know, you, it all comes back to you a year or two later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And John went on to do, obviously, The Shining with him as well, which uh, he, he didn't complete, and I finished the film off for him. So there you go. Um, so I was very grateful for that. I was considered the number one or number two choice to him. You know, I think essentially he was a fine cameraman. You know, and, and The Shining uh, is fa- is fascinating uh, photographically uh, mm. for for the for the use of Steadicam, the most yes, kind of prominent Steadicam yes. at that time. Yeah, it was. Yes. Um, what were the particular challenges that, that you found on that shoot? Well, I didn't find any with the Steadicam because I mean. I think Garrett Brown did. I think yeah, he was the inventor, professor, who invented the machine. And he, he, it was completely inert in his hands. He, he just made it speak. Mm-hmm. His camera was just something fantastic to be with. And I was this, and everything was remote. Lenses were turned remote. You had a Selsun, which controlled radio signals to the lens. It could do things. And we finally, uh, um, you know, the challenge with, with Garrett was having to do maybe 10, 12, 20 takes, running through three corridors and ending up on a close-up. You know, um, three corridors meaning maybe two sets. So the kitchen out, the kitchen living the lounge into the main reception area. You do that in one take, and there wasn't a blip in the camera movement. There wasn't one. And, uh, and with wide angles, largely, where you could leave, you know, the lens almost locked off at 10 feet, and it would all be sharp. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing like as challenging for me as as as, as, as Berlin. Nothing like it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I, the only... Um, uh, as always with him, you know, it's uh, it, it's being made to feel important to his creation. You know, I mean, that was sharing the prize. The prize is always 24-7, eat, drink, and sleep it, and you're contracted to him, body, and soul. You are. That's the way it is, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it isn't good for home life, not good for marriages. It's hopeless for that sort of thing. And I think with Hawk films, you do sort of book, booking divorces, so we can all get, I didn't, but my wife luckily stood by me. <laughs> but a lot of, lot of bad you married to him or me, my wife used to say. Wow, they should have had well a marriage done. a marriage exactly. counselor on. Uh, they should have had a marriage counselor on set. That should have been one of the. Uh, that would have been good. Uh, you know what though? Uh, the, the shoot of The Shining lasted lasted quite a while. Uh, it was that. Did Mr. Alcott have different uh, obligations that he had to get to, and that's why you came on at the last seven weeks, or what happened there? Say again. When you took over, it was a long while. But what? When you took over for Mr. Alcott, wh- yeah. Why? Why did that happen? Did he? Well, I think he. I don't know. I mean, I. I. I, I it wasn't. He was removed. No, not at all. I think he had plans to. Uh, the film was, as you know, unquestionably they go on longer than you know the scheduled time mm-hmm. um, built into. A, script and things like that. Not that we ever saw a script, actually, but there we are. We knew 
that essentially John had been with him before and knew it would go on and on. I think that was his way of saying, well, I'll give you 20 weeks or whatever it was, and, and I've got to leave to do something else. And when it came to 20 weeks, he did. Mm. So we still had seven to go, which I finished. <laughs> 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 but he didn't come back for any more. I think um, it's a life, it's, it is a life. I mean, it's like with Ken Adam, you know, Ken did Strange Love as a designer. Oh, I think, um, and then came back and did Barry Lyndon. I think, uh, you know, I, I suppose in a way, I, I was one of the few that did more than three films with him, three and a half films with him, you know? Yeah. But when it came to, um, I think Eyes Wide Shut, I had reasons for not coming on board, and my wife wasn't well, she was unwell, and we were living in the place at the time. Mm. And I just thought it would be another year, uh, and it's going to be a drain on our... Not just the nervous system, a privilege, as it always is, but I, I, I wasn't sure that after a long layoff, which he'd had, um, it would be more demanding than the others. You know what I'm saying? Mm. On me personally, mm -hmm. my private life and everything else, and I don't think I was prepared to, uh, to that. Although, you know, again, I, in hindsight, I wish I had have done it. I really do. So there you go. But when you, when you uh, started uh, developing... Full Metal Jacket. <clears throat> tell, tell me the conversations that that you two shared about the the visual scheme of it. Well, we two shared. He had a, a vision, and uh, we went ahead and tested every possible um, way of approaching it. Whether first of all was going to be like the longest day in sixty-five mil black and white, which I was thrilled about. And it, then it thought it might be more, um, you know, sort of sixteen mil more um, docudrama type deal and things like that. Um, so we discussed all that, did tests with 16, 65, bought, he bought two 65mm cameras. Um, he buys all his equipment, which I test thoroughly. Everything that he buys, I test. Mm -hmm. So he had a, an arsenal of cameras, probably six, seven cameras, plus what, several, 70 or 80 different lenses as well. Okay, so it was quite a bit of equipment for him to do that. Um, and then they discussed, we discussed maybe, well, if we're going to go 35, just make it look like it was shot an 8mm or something small. And in other words, desaturate it as much as possible, take out whatever color there is, because you've got to make Vietnam. Although it was uh, um, uh, set in Southeast Asia, it was actually shot in Southeast London, mm. all of it. All right? Mm. Yeah, so that, that's, that's amazing. What it was, you bring in things, elements, and uh, the elements were largely existing uh, city structures of way, Tet and all the rest of it, which were bombed out and blitzed urban warfare, which is what it was. But what it was, as you know, it was a, a, a gas factory, or gas um, um, power station, if you like, which was going to be demolished. Mm. So a lot of stuff was actually a gel ignite and pulled down by um, uh, military to reduce it to rubble for us. So they did it, and we shot it. So we had already a, a, a bombed-out city completely built for us, and all we did was put a, several hundred palm trees here and there and skips and place them to taste in all, most of the compositions and, you know, set lights to them, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that was another aspect. We tested that. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> and then we thought, well, let's keep it, like, dull. You can't... The heat isn't... Perfect and gas works. It is in Vietnam. You've got to make this place feel like you're dying. It's heat, unimaginable. You know, um, humidity and one thing or another. But that was the only difficult thing to do to keep the cold breath. Because they were frozen some of the time. They, you know, 
foot jackets and things like that, bare shoulders, and it was cold. It was just winter. The whole thing went through summer to winter. So, um, again, testing stuff, which was shooting again, you know, either first thing, first light or last light. Or if we had to shoot during the day, we had, the weather had to be pretty great and overcast. So you could, you know, the sultriness of it, and obviously. Yeah. So to shoot wide open meant, um, you know, stacking a lot of NDs on the lenses um, to reduce the exposure through the lens. So it flattened it out a lot. So if you had a daylight exposure, I don't know, 1622, we still shoot at f 14 So we put NDs all up front to take the take the correction filter off so it went kind of cold and kept everything wide open. So even on the wide-angle lenses, it still looked shallow and you were shooting full aperture, so you got the maximum effect from all the, the, the fire, the gun bullets, shells, fire, crackers, anything that was going off looked completely real. You know, you saw, you weren't pulling that in, you weren't underexposing it, you were overexposing everything, even though you had a, a bright, full-lit day. So again, that was more testing. So all this stuff, this is what you, you talk about before it goes. So when you're into it, you get on with it. You get the lenses. He wanted to shoot with Nikons. So he bought every Nikon stills lens. We had those adapted to fit a, a freeze NC camera or remounted Nikon um, mounts on the camera. Uh, that I think the, the lens arsenal then was something over 100 different, 100 different lenses mm. uh, and wild cameras and this, that, and the other. And again, you know, I was operating and lighting the show for him, and you know, and so there's very few people involved, really, in even the film the size of Full Metal Jacket. We never had a huge crew, you know. There was myself, the full crew, an assistant cameraman, grips, two electricians, or something like that, and that's how we carried on the way we did. The sets were built pre-lit already, so we went straight in and just pulled a switch on our memories, did them to the exposure we predetermined at the levels we wanted to shoot at, and bang, off we went and shot it. You know, that's it. So it was really, really prepared, and technically in that sense. That gave him all the time in the world to work with actors and get the performances he needed. And I think Matthew Modine did a, an amazing job. I mean, I, I, I used to say to him after I think, several months of shooting, you know, whatever you're on, Stanley, can you get me some? Because you, you, you never seem to want to sleep. He only averaged, what, five hours sleep a night. Mm. He was never caught off guard. And never vulnerable. I mean, the camera setup was always with one inch off its mark. Now, who would notice that? He did. <laughs> always framing the composition essential to his trained eye. It was phenomenal, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay? Uh, yeah, I, I could... I could uh... You got all that, did you? So, I mean, uh, did that answer your question? I don't know. No, it absolutely did. an answer did. in there somewhere, yeah? <laughs> well, I can never be specific and answer these questions in one line. It has You have to give a whole series of things because you learn more from one film you go back and go now you learn more about him and you do three with him you learn even more about him personally yeah. you probably you know you may have adopted the role of a family member or you might have been his un, um, un, a new son you know that sort of you know what I'm saying no I understand I, completely I, I, I felt that that connection to him it got very close well, there were there was a. I wanted to ask you about one particular scene in Full Metal Jacket, and yeah. forgive me because my knowledge of, of photography it, it, it's not very vast. But uh, there's there's a scene where the the, the female the Vietnamese uh, a gunman uh, yeah. assassin at the end. And yeah. The the flames and there's a sort of ghosting. Yeah. Was that yeah. that a special 
photographic effect? <laughs> Do you know, um, I wanted to, well, he, we wanted more crazy, so because when you find the girl, you find, oh, my God, this, you know, to make this kid look crazy or what. But, uh, you know, she's 13 years old. She's wiped out a whole platoon. And when you go into this place, you know, mm-hmm. it's on fire because they put about a million rounds into it, but they haven't shot her. But, um, so we have an idea that if, if because if you use the old, the old, um, the old-fashioned cameras, um, you know the ones, the non-reflex cameras, that is, you can muck around with the shutter, and you can put the movement out of sync. So what you're doing, whether you're photographing the frame already ahead of the, the principal frame you're putting, and also the tail end of the other frame beneath it, which is going through. So you're getting flames coming off one frame and into another. So it's surrounding the one principal, and then later on when you print it out, you have the um, this you know um, fire creeping in from all all aspects of the format. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They did a lot on on um, um, on Ryan, uh, what's the one? Uh, uh, um, calling was it calling Private Ryan? The one that this, uh, saving Private uh, Ryan. Book. Yeah, because um, the DP rang me and said, "How did you do that?" And they shot a lot of landings on the beaches with old cameras that they could throw them out of sync. So you're recording one frame, another frame, into the one, into the one. So the camera was running partially out of sync. You know what I'm saying? Well, yes, yeah. You just alter the movement to grab one perf of the frame in front and one perf of the frame that's already gone through and amalgamate them into the one. And you had all these, these, this sort of blurred, not a blurred effect. It's just a very, very exciting look for confusion. And uh, I think that's uh, when she gets shot. That, that's um, right. The effect that came through, and I think it worked. We, we wondered if it was might have been a mistake to do that, but uh, in fact, it looked quite interesting. Oh, it's incredible! And he he actually he, he attached himself in it. It's interesting. If you come out of a movie, a Kubrick movie, saying how do they do that, or that's interesting, if, if that will always stay in the movie. If that won't hit the floor, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me what you the cutting room floor that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you miss most about him. Well, I I I I think that um, you know, his untimely demise left left a loving wife and a family. But it, what it did, it 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 it, 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 it sort of shattered the lives of all who really knew him. You know, and I I still consider myself somebody that knew him. But really, I've got the word really underlined because not people really knew him. Hmm. So I'm still trying to come to terms. He's no longer with us. You know, as far as I'm concerned, there will never, ever be another Stanley Kubrick. And I think that's true in my lifetime anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I've, I've, I always appreciated his films. But since I started a series and been speaking to 50 or so of his collaborators I've mm. it's such I've grown such a deeper appreciation of of what he meant to cinema I mean you mm. and and people talk about how few films he made but these films will last forever yeah. <laughs> as long as there are movies um, except I don't know about Eyes Wide Shut I, I mean I I, I I you know I, I I don't know if he could live with that one I don't think um, I don't know officially I don't know why he died frankly but there we are we, I always felt he was indestructible, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was others that were vulnerable, not him. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, yes, I, I'm not sure uh, that, that will live 
outlived the, the, the legacy of his work, or certainly. But I, I, I still come to terms with it. As I say, sometimes, you know, um, you know, a lot of these films, you know, until their status of something truly special emerged, often years and years and years later. When I went to, a, uh, if I can digress a little, I was asked a couple. Of, was it last year? The BFI were putting on a copy of for, uh, what was it? Barry Lyndon. Mm. In the, at the British Film Institute, and I went up there to just introduce it because I was one of the few living members that was on the crew and still alive. Because <laughs> that was over 30, I think it's its 30th anniversary. So it's 32 years now, 33 years ago. And afterwards, and I, I, I sat at the back, and it was three hours plus and everything else. And, and I remember reading all these reviews that it was the biggest antidote for insomnia since Benzedrine. Right, about the worst thing I could ever read about <laughs> the critics saying this was then, thirty years earlier. So at the end, did I find anybody filled this? And half the audience, although there were only what three hundred people, half the audience put their hands up and said they hadn't seen it before and enjoyed it very much for the first time. And the other half said they enjoyed it much more the second time. This is thirty years later, you know. Yeah. So, um, so as often we think there's faults and things, a lot of things he does. He sometimes is ahead of the game, isn't he? He is. Very much. But and that, why you choose a film like uh, Barrowland, you just don't know, do you? Because it's a tough book to read. I mean, Make Peace Sackroy took 10 years to write it. We left it and came back to it years later to finish it. And I always had that feeling that's what we were doing on Barry Linda. We didn't know how to finish it, <laughs> where the film was going. <laughs> what, what was it going to do for him? You know, it helped us in the camera side of things. It was fascinating. It's kind of an exercise, really, and how to work um, with, you know, go back to school and learn something different, you know, yeah. and get paid <laughs> one time. Well, and you bring up an interesting point, because a lot of his movies were met with uh, with criticism upon their release, and then it wasn't until years later that they were finally appreciated as they, they should have been. That's right. Uh, it's really but, special. isn't it? Something from them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Did you have any kind of conversations with him concerning Napoleon because I think it was around well I mean that was what when I met him at the end of Eyes Wide Shut he, he didn't look very healthy I must say he looked like he lost quite a bit of weight because I hadn't seen him for about a year uh, or more and um, he, he mentioned that to me then we, 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 he wants me back must, he must do the next he wanted me to do the next and I, I felt that he was prepared to go with something. I'm not sure what it was, because there was lots of things, I think. It was dealing mainly, when you say Napoleon, it's a board canvas, and I'm not sure. I think that was pre-Barry pre Lyndon he wanted, he was looking at. He did, Napoleon. yes, he did. He's had that for some time. And you go to these archives, which are in London. You ever get a chance to visit them? They're at the Elephant and Castle, the, the Kubrick archives, you know, there. Yeah. At the Academy somewhere. Uh, if you want details, I'll get them for you, if ever you're over here. I've heard, I've heard people. I've spoken to people that have investigated those archives. That it's just a treasure trove. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, they're always there. I haven't been. Yeah, we are. You see, because I live on the Welsh border, way outside. But, but I, yeah, I, I'm going to get over there and have a look um, and see. But I think that's a collection of stuff which he's had on the cards for some time. Apparently, another. I mean, he was in, also involved very much, but this long gap between sort of. Uh, Full Metal Jacket and Ice White Shot. Yeah. During yeah. those 14 years, he did a lot of research on a lot of stuff. <laughs> mm. I mean, not least uh, AI, you know, which I think at one time he was 
going to do. But uh, and then when it came out, um, he thought well, that was that. It couldn't be better. One way Steven Spielberg shot it. But uh, there were so many things. He wanted to go out on a uh, on a big show, uh, a high, you know. Yeah, Do and that's why I think, in a way, he was he was disappointed with uh, Eyes Wide Shut. I don't know what you felt about it. What did you feel about Eyes Wide Shut? I love all those movies, and I, I love you Eyes Wide Shut. And I, I think Eyes Wide Shut is a film that has deepened in meaning for me over the years too. Is it? Yeah, and, and I feel that I feel that the conversation is coming back to Eyes Wide Shut in general among movie fans. They're they're grappling mm. with it again. Mm. Which you need to do with a Kubrick film. I mean, you're not going to get you're not going to get the answers on first viewing. It doesn't tell you how you're supposed to feel like other no. movies do, you know. But you know, how many people go and see so many films again that other yeah. directors have shot? Very few. You can put mm-hmm. him amongst those that you know it did. You know, his, his work did. <laughs> well, before before I let you go, I actually want to ask about um, another of your projects that. That people definitely go back and watch over and over again, uh, and that's that's Lonesome Dove. You, you shot. Oh right. Yeah. Yes. Did you uh, like that? Oh, it's it's classic. I, I was speaking. I was speaking to Robert Duvall, and, and we were talking on and on about your namesake, Lonesome Dove. Absolutely. Your namesake. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that must have been a special uh, project. Oh, that was fantastic too. I mean, I must admit it was. But unfortunately, I mean, I live in England, and you've never seen it all. You know, I mean, mm. it might have been shown here on, but not over eight hours, which it ran. I think it ran like eight hours or something stupid. You know, ten hour, ten hour miniseries of which I think one hour forty of interruptions, commercials, and one thing, and made it eight hours something. So I don't think we've ever seen it all in America. They have, and I say it was viewed there. Um, you often wonder sometimes whether it could be made into a feature, or what would you lose, and where yeah. would you lose it? You know, yeah. you can't, can you really? So, uh, um, yes, it fell short of not being viewed. I think here, really. So, yeah, very few people in this country have heard of it. But uh, McMurtry's book was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, I read yeah. the book, and um, which was several hundred pages thick, and uh, um, you grip from cover to cover. And I, I don't know how Bill Whitliffe did such an amazing job condensing it all into a three, what is it, three, four hundred page script, which was, I thought, you know, enlightening stuff. And everybody wanted to be in it, so they got a fantastic cast, didn't they? They really did. They really did. I, I enjoyed that. immensely working working on that every day of it, I did, honestly. Because I'd never done a Western, so I didn't know what the approach. And Simon Winter had done stuff in, in Australia, one thing or another. And between the Australian ideas and my ideas, you know, we kicked in, into something really quite unusual to see, too. I thought quite different, you know. Yeah. Together with Dean Semler's second unit direction. I was very lucky to have Dean. So, all in all, yes, again, that's something. But, you know, it's not like a masterpiece because it's not a, a feature. I mean, you know, although it got many Emmy nominations, um, it, it, it would have got Oscars. Had it been a film, you know what I'm saying? I think so too. But and remembered the, more for for something. I don't know. I think at the same time, it's very it's it's very much cherished in this in this country, and I think that the the fact that it it, it plays as a mini series, I mean, it feels like a great novel uh, yeah. as a film. So yeah, I I right. don't know what it would lose at feature length as a mini series. It feel it keeps that kind of great novel feeling to it. Yes, it does. It does. But. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe it should be a short. Uh, we did, and I did. Uh, I directed the second because I was asked to do the second one, which I don't think. Uh, well, we, they didn't want 
I don't think it was anything like the script. It was rewritten by somebody. It wasn't McMurtry. And this is the thing about McMurtry. Every day, the book, everybody in the cast, all of them, when we were doing the original, had a copy of the book with them. It's like the gospel mm. according to McMurtry. So all they really wanted from us was where to stand, where to look, and they knew the rest. You know, they knew <laughs> the rest. <laughs> when it came to the remake, I mean, John Boyd did a fantastic job, but he wasn't Gus. He wasn't, he wasn't Tom, right. you know, Tom. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. It's just it, you just had those characters emblazoned in, in, in your brain. You can you can omit them, you know. Absolutely. And uh, everybody. I mean, Ricky, your Angelica, who's and all the rest, Danny, Danny Glover. Uh, you know, unless you get the same cast back, it doesn't. It somehow will lend itself to something more. So I lectured just to photograph the second unit, which I did for seventy days, and um, but it, it came nowhere in uh, um, as a collection of anything close to the original. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they're one-offs, aren't they, really? But uh, I suppose in a way I'd love it to have been a... a, a, um, If we could have poured out maybe two and a half hours into a feature, I think it was sort of cleaned up as a piece of, you know, uh, as a film. I know what you're saying, you lose a lot. But uh, again, um, it might have gathered, you know... I'd love an Oscar. I'd never won an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, my age, I would love to have gone out. <laughs> in a blaze of glory or something. Well, you've I'm done... mucking about doing stuff for television, slasher, pure trying to make really bad scripts, which nobody seems better write good scripts these days, look rather photographically good. And it's really a waste of time, because they never wind up in the theatre anyway, though they claim to be theatrical releases. They get bought, pre-sold, and you find them in blockbusters somewhere, you know, about a year later. And that way, you'll never, your work's never appreciated by your peers because they're not viewed on the big screen, you know. Yeah. Well, and so the, you don't get the big prizes. <laughs> well, does does working for a Kubrick does that kind of spoil you in a way? Yeah, I think it does. I'm very uh, bitter now about the way things are. Yeah. You know, with the business, really, I am. Uh, it's, it's vastly different. It is. I, I think it is. I mean, I don't know. Guys coming out of film school now, you know, they they fool around with this sort of high def SLR cameras and call themselves cinematographers. It's like you and I having a laptop and calling ourselves an author. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And the stuff never comes out looking fantastic anyway. Yeah. CGI was well. The CGI now it's all in the control largely, our work, I think, of the Chevisini, you know? And that's what they spend money on nowadays, resurrecting bad photography or medium photography to make it look something different in the final four, in the final tech, because that's the show now. It's all done on, in post, isn't it? Most of the stuff now is done in post. Yeah, yeah. It is different. So it... anyway, um, so yes, I am. I'm waiting for the big one. <laughs> <laughs>